Thanks, Megan. Good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Bethany here in the sanctuary, also online. Glad that you're with us. We're continuing a series entitled Cultivating Faith. It has to do with our relationship with the created order. So we're honored that you're with us. We heard Psalm 19 read. I'll pray, and then we'll continue to hear what God has for us. Father, thanks that we can gather within these walls listening for your voice. We're grateful, Father, that uh, you have spoken into creation through a text and through creation itself in order that we might be drawn to you, worship you, and be transformed, live into our calling. So would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear what your Holy Spirit is saying to us today and shape us, Father, with encouragement and challenge and next steps. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Uh, I'm gonna jump right into this this morning. There's two big ideas and then some next steps. And the two big ideas, uh, like of the two, the bigger idea is the first idea. And so I wanna focus on that just for a moment here. All transformation is the result of response to revelation. Who in the room is in need of transformation? Is there anything in your life that you'd like to see different? Like you could raise your hand or not, doesn't matter, but um, if you raise your hand, then you're self-aware, and if you're not, you're delusional, because we all need, we all need transformation. And m- one of my favorite texts in the Bible, don't have time to explain why, but I just, you, you can believe me, 2 Corinthians uh, 3, verse 16 to 18, says this, when a person turns to the Lord, the veil's taken away, the Lord is spirit, where the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty, But we all with unveiled face are beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. And we are then, as a result of beholding, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord. So all transformation is a result of response to revelation uh, means this through the lens of 2 Corinthians 3.16. When I look at God's glory... And gaze at it. I mean, the word uh, behold here, the Greek word is theodzomai, from which we get, um, we get the English word theater, actually. And it's kind of this notion of when you go into the theater, you're absorbed by what you're beholding. When I absorb what I'm beholding, right? When that happens, it's like this inviolable law of the universe. If I receive God's glory and allow it to be internalized, I will be transformed all come to more accurately represent the heart of God. It says it from glory to glory to glory. So everything happens because God is revealing and I'm responding. And when you look at the Bible, of course, that's true, right? Adam sins, runs, and then God seeks, God speaks to Adam. Revelation, Adam responds. God speaks to Abraham, leave your land. Abraham responds. God speaks to Moses. I'm sending you back to the place of your childhood to be the voice of deliverance to an oppressed people. Moses responds. God speaks to David, right? God's revelation to creation speaks to David. God's revelation to the prophet Samuel speaks to David. Uh, Later, Nathan the prophet, he's transformed from a shepherd to a king to a repentant king, all as a result of response to revelation. Uh, Rahab is a woman in uh, the book of Joshua involved in prostitution. She's a Gentile. She's a liar. But also this, when she encounters the people of God in the form of spies sent into Jericho, this is what she says. I know your God is the true God. I've been watching. There's been revelation. I've been watching him guide your people, protect, bless you, give you victory. I'm siding with you guys in this impending battle, so how can I help you? And as a result of her words and her faith, she's held up as a pillar of faith in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 11. 
She responded to Revelation. Isaiah, I saw the Lord, I was transformed. Ezekiel, I saw the Lord, I was transformed. <clears throat> Peter, James, John, Paul, you, me, you're only transformed as you respond to Revelation. All right, that's the first big idea. Now, the second big idea, Revelation that transforms comes through two books. And you're like this, boy, the first idea was short. We could get out of here soon. No, the second idea is long. So here we go, right? Revelation that transforms comes through two books. Uh, we heard read parts of Psalm 19, which articulates that there are two predominant sources of revelation that we're invited to behold in order that we might be transformed. The sacred cosmos creation, the sacred text, the Bible, right? And the point of both revelations is to awaken you and I to life in Christ. And in both cases, when we respond, uh, uh, when we fail to respond to that revelation, our, like our growth, our transformation is truncated. I can only continue to grow as I respond to revelation. And God is revealing in these, in these essentially two books, the Bible and the book of, of creation. So what I want to do is at the outset here, let you know that both books have inherent dangers in them. Many evangelicals would, would understand the dangers of worshiping creation, but not be blind to the dangers of the Bible. And many outside the church understand the dangers of the Bible are blind to uh, the dangers of worshiping creation. I want, I want you to see, both, you can idolize both books. Some people idolize creation, some people idolize the Bible. So let's just talk about both of those things and clear the deck here. First of all, we live in a world where many people idolize creation. And if you read Romans 1, you understand I'm going to paraphrase here for time. But in Romans 1, here's God's judgment. Everyone knows the character of God, right? Because God's character has been revealed to even those without a Bible. How? Through creation. Through creation, we see God's divine uh, power and God's infinitude and many other characters that I'll get into later uh, this morning. But we know, like, there's, we know as a maker, it's kind of a right brain revelation, intuitive from this. There's no accident, right? But then Romans 1 says, uh, people receiving that revelation refused to respond properly. They didn't give thanks to the creator, thankful for creation, but not thankful for the author of creation, right? And so when that happens, it says God gave them up. Oh, you want to worship creation rather than the creator. Well, here's the judgment. I'll let you do that. And then they end up worshiping creation rather than the creator. And, and when, when that happens, it's essentially making it impossible for someone to grow into the life for which they're created, right? Why? Because this is an idolization of creation. And I want to say, in the Pacific Northwest where you and I live, this is a big deal, idolizing creation. Why would it be a big deal here? Well, look around, man. Like, this is not Alabama, no offense if you're from there. <laughs> it's, it's the greatest place in the world, in my opinion. And I travel a lot and, and love it here. And, you know, when I was back in the day running the show here and that kind of stuff, you know, I get calls from people, hey, we want you to come and be our pastor in Minnesota and Phoenix. And I'd just laugh. I'd say, this, that will never happen. 
because I'm committed to this because I, I love it. What's not to love? Okay, fine. But don't let that love become idolatry because just looking at history, we see over and over again that many hunter-gatherer cultures, not all, but many, uh, fell prey to animism. In other words, worshiping the trees, worshiping the sun, worshiping the moon, worshiping the soil. Uh, and then even post-hunter-gatherer, as we became agrarian and metropolitan, empires arose. And in these empires, for example, the Babylonian Empire, there were gods of the sun, gods of the moon, goddess of fertility. And worshiping these gods and goddesses became fear-based, led to child sacrifice, tribalism, unfettered violence, slavery. Like, these people paid a great deal of attention to creation, but didn't give thanks to the creator who was the author of all of it. And that's idolatry of creation. Now, that's not just a problem for then and there because materialism is also a form of uh, pantheism. In other words, when you worship the stuff that comes from creation, the stuff that we make, that's, that's its own form of idolatry. And all forms of materialism are at the core guilty of worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And then in the case of industrial materialism, where you and I live, the objects of worship are creations made by humans. And we worship not only the stuff at times, like we get addicted to the stuff, but we worship also the wealth and lifestyle that such creations offer. And then we become protective of our lifestyle and our consumerism and, 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 and all the benefits of that that accrue to us. And as a result of that, we stop stewarding the land. And then Hosea 4 kicks in, which says, look, whenever you don't worship the creator, whenever that happens, it doesn't matter if it's animism or the Babylonian Empire or industrial materialism, the same thing happens. When you stop worshiping the creator, the land mourns. Why? Because if I'm not worshiping the creator, I'm not in relationship with my creator to embrace my calling as steward. So whatever happens, I must worship the creator, not creation. There's people not in here right now. The trailheads are packed. There's probably more people out hiking than are in churches on this particular Sunday in early June. And they just need to wake up to one more step. Do you understand? They're already worshiping. There's just one more step, the creator. But if I don't take that step, it's idolatry and ultimately destructive. Now, like if you're fundamentalist, you're like this, preach it, man. Those nasty people hiking out there, they should be in here studying the Bible. But now I want to turn the table and warn us, there are also many who idolize the Bible. And before I get started, I want to give a caveat here. Yes, all scripture is inspired by God, worthy for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. I get it. I believe it. It's all true. All good. Uh, the grand and clearest revelation of God's plan for the cosmos, the answer to humanity's dilemma, it comes from the scriptures, right? Okay, good. And those very scriptures contain a warning John 5.39, where Jesus is speaking to people like me, like religious professionals who knew their Bibles really well. And this is what Jesus says. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Now, if you did a hard stop right there, boom, you'd be like this. Ah, Jesus is commending people for studying the Bible a lot. 
right? You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Yeah, man, good for you. Study harder, right? Know the Bible, defend the Bible, memorize the Bible, teach the Bible, recite the Bible, love the Bible, argue about which version of the Bible is the best version of the Bible. All that, yeah, 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 yeah. But it's not a compliment. What Jesus is saying is not a compliment. Here's the whole sentence. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. They testify to me, but you are unwilling to come to me. Wow. So here's the mistake. You thought that life was found in this book. I'm just going to tell you, it isn't found in this book. John Muir's dad was a Scottish Presbyterian, again, just like Alabama. No offense to Scots or Presbyterians intended here, but that's just where he lived and what he was. John Muir's dad made his son, John Muir, of John Muir fame, right? Uh, He had to memorize all of Isaiah as a kid, like word for word. And if he missed a word, his dad would beat him. Now, that's not the joy of the Lord. That's That's not inviting. That's not compelling. But that's... That was Muir's reality, and he left the church utterly only to rediscover Christ and God by reading the second book, the book of creation. But John Muir's dad, I think, was guilty of idolizing the Bible. And I heard a friend of mine, uh, or a fellow teacher, I should say, uh, teach on John 5.39 uh, from a Jewish perspective, this guy who teaches with torchbearers, and I can't confirm that this, that what he says is true, but he said it, he has no reason to lie. He, he said when, in contemporary times, when rabbis uh, in the conservative vein of Judaism are preparing to become rabbis, they have to know their text so well, they have a copy of the Torah, you know, and the law, the first five books of the Bible, and they've memorized it, and then their test at some point in history was You know, a nail is driven through the text and then on page one, the examiner would read the word that the nail had pierced and it was responsibility of the rabbi to know every other word that that nail had pierced. In other words, he had memorized his Bible so thoroughly, the place on the page even, that he knew, knew the text. This is what Jesus is saying in John 5.39. You search the scriptures. Oh yeah, we do. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Bible study, verse a day by email. You know, memorize the Bible. Meditate on the Bible. Know the Bible. Love the Bible. Defend the Bible. Here's the deal. Bible is never the point. The Bible is a means to an end. And the end is Jesus. Or to be more clear, the end is you and I displaying the character of Jesus because Jesus lives in us. The end is loving God and loving your neighbor, which means what? Means laying down your life. Means serving the least of these. Means means, uh, being the first to cross social divides. Means naming spiritual pride as one of the most dangerous sins. Means living generously. Drawing entirely on the resources of the creator for guidance, strength, direction. All these things are the point of the Bible. And what did Jesus say? By the number of Bible verses memorized, you shall know them. By the number of minutes spent in Bible study, you shall know them. By their ability to defend inerrancy, you shall know them. No. You want to know who a true disciple is? Here's what Jesus says. By their fruits, you'll know them. So the sniff test is actually pretty easy. Do you look like Jesus? 
If so, you're on a good trajectory. If, but if you don't look like Jesus, if there's glaring kind of failure in your life, the Bible used properly is the foundational tool to move me toward relationship with Jesus so that I become a branch on the vine of his life. But if the result of my studying the Bible doesn't lead to eye contact and, you know, tipping well and loving my neighbor, whether my neighbor is Muslim or gay or conservative or liberal or greedy or bipolar or owns 10 guns or is a pacifist, or is an evangelical or an immigrant, if I can't love my neighbor, bam, 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 warning lights should go off, right? And re- not, not too recently, but in 2006, I can tell you, when I was writing a book at that time, uh, Pew Research had discovered that people who don't attend church are less likely to know their neighbor's names than people who do. <laughs> and what did Jesus say was the two commandments? Love God and What? Love your neighbor. Can't love my neighbor. Got to go to Bible study. (laughs) The sniff test is, do I look like Jesus? So there are two books, creation and the Bible. Both can be idolized. Both can also be neglected. And if you love creation but neglect the Bible, you're, you're missing the fullest and most accessible expression of God's character. Why why do I say that? Because in Hebrews 2, this is what we're told. God has revealed God's character in many ways all through the scripture, but now in these last days, God has revealed God's character most fully in the person of Jesus. You want to know what God looks like? A tree will tell you something. Jesus will tell you more, right? The fullest expression. So God's not seen most clearly in a tree or snowfall or mountain stream. God has seen most clearly the person of Jesus, the only human ever to perfectly display God's image. Is Jesus sometimes hard to understand? Yeah. Is he annoying at times? Totally. No problem. Sit with the mystery because the world is mysterious and glorious. The Bible presents clarity of divine expression in Christ and Also, hugely significant, the Bible tells me the trajectory of history so that I know where all this is going. And as a result of that, I'm okay in the midst of all the darkness and betrayal and loss and suffering that happens in our world. Every week, feels like this summer, a friend has died of cancer. There's another story of infidelity. There's another story of betrayal. There's another story of loss. There's another story of, uh, you know, political intrigue or, in, or incompetency. There's another war. There's another bombing of an apartment complex or a hospital, for God's sake. How, what is this? I'll tell you what it is, among other things, not the end of the story. <laughs> because when the story ends, it's everything, in the, every atom in the universe saturated with the glory of God. Last night, I don't have time to go into this, I shouldn't even say it, but last night, I could not get to sleep after reading the end of the second book of C.S. Lewis Space Trilogy, because the end of the second book in Paralandra is where uh, uh, there's this kind of declaration of how our story, our collective story as a universe ends, and I'm reading, there's tears in my eyes, and I'm like, 
This is it. This is it. Everything interconnected. Everything shot through with the glory of God. Everything healed. All righteousness. All broken relationships reconciled. And that's not the end of the story. That's the beginning of the story of eternity. Wow. Okay, now I can get up in the morning and live as a person of hope. I didn't get that from the tree, though. I got it from the text. But don't neglect the other book, the book of creation. For a couple of reasons. First of all, if the text is left brain, creation is right brain. And I can't tell you how many times as a guy who's been involved in wilderness ministry my whole life, how many times people have been utterly unpersuaded by what I'm doing right now. Like sleeping, as some of you are, right? And bored and defensive and who cares? Who ultimately, the front door for the gospel for them was a sunrise or Alpenglow on Mount Rainier from Sauk Mountain. Beautiful. So don't neglect that book. Why? Because in that book is the revelation of God's character. When we have ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to respond, again, it's this inviolable law that comes from God. We're transformed by gazing at God's glory. We gaze at God's glory in the text. We gaze at God's glory in uh, brand new flowers. And in both cases, we are transformed. More clearly able to reflect God's glory in our own lives. And since reflecting God's glory is what it's all about, then paying attention to creation is vital. Because we will learn of God's character by paying attention to creation. So what's gained from the book of creation? First of all, revelation of God's character. Let me just show you a few pictures so, so you can understand what I mean by that. Uh, this picture taken from Austria in the Alps. And uh, I, I'm just reminded of God's mercy and generosity when I stand on high mountain peaks. Why? Because when I stand on high mountain peaks, I kind of have this recognition of the seasons that come and go and come and go and come and go. And there's, a, there's actually a scripture, right? Jesus says it, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Now, because you get a lot of rain here in Seattle, you view that as a judgment passage, but it's not actually a judgment passage. It's a blessing passage. And what is God saying? God is saying, hey, who gets, who gets water to drink? Putin, the Shah, that wicked guy down the street, the day trader, the Enron exec, who gets to see sunrises? Avalanche lilies, roses. Who gets to eat food? Who gets to breathe air? Because trees are breathing so that we can breathe. Who, who gets that? Everybody. Just and the unjust. God's mercy is infinite. God's generosity is unconditional. Here's the other thing I see in creation. God's always making all things new. This is a picture of avalanche lilies. And uh, there's a certain place near my house with these avalanche shoots. And I know now, having lived there long enough, that the last week in May, I remember saying to Donna, we got to go out. It's avalanche lily day. And we went. And you only get about three days with these, with these lilies. And if you, like, if you miss it, it's gone. But we, we saw them. And they're there. They're spectacularly beautiful. That was like 10 days ago. I went back uh, like four days ago, and they were gone. They're here, and they're, and they're gone. God makes them, and they're gone. And boy, 
I, you know, I just look at that and I go, that's such a picture of my own life, too. I have this moment to shine. And then it's, then it's over. But it's not over. God is making all things new. I'll be renewed. Though my outer man is wasting away, my inner man is being renewed. All this comes to me just by looking at the avalanche lilies. And this next thing I'm about to show you is a movie, and I've got to tell you the context. You're about to see a little woodpecker um, peck, pecking at a tree. I'm literally studying this section of this sermon on Wednesday morning, and I'm praying, and I'm saying, God, I just need to have reminders of how creation speaks of your character. Could you bring reminders? And then, out of the sky, lands right in front of me, this woodpecker, and this is what happens. It's called a palliated woodpecker, and what he's doing is he's eating the bugs out of that stump, and the woodpecker is necessary in the forest to hasten the, uh, the transformation of fallen trees into soil. So he's eating, helping that. You have soil because of him. And without soil, you don't have food, by the way. And then when, before a tree has fallen, when it's on its way, it's in its last days, right? The woodpecker can hear bugs in the tree. And then with that beak, it starts pecking away and it gets the bugs out, but in so doing, it carves a home for a squirrel. Interdependency. And what I wrote in my journal after watching those guys, that, watching that guy, there's nothing that lives on this planet that's just a consumer. Nothing. Everything has a role to play, including me, including you. Don't ever allow yourselves to be defined by a consumer. And yet that's the culture in which we live. Everything's seeking to, to, to define you on, on Google and Facebook and TikTok. You are a consumer and we've got to get you to buy stuff. That's not who you are. You have a contribution just like the woodpecker. And then um, beauty, this next picture. This was just a day with skins on going up a mountain and the sun was coming up through the fog. And I was like, really? Life can be this good? Yes, it can. Yeah, God, God is match, like infinitely creative. And finally, a sense of proportion comes to me anytime I'm near a volcano. That's Mount Rainier. And I realize uh, I'm small, the cosmos is big. I realize I'm here a little while, the mountains are here for millions, billions of years. And I think of this verse, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. Changing, but always there, always steady, steady, steady. So, what's gained from the book of creation, Revelation of God's character? Affection for creation. And this, of course, is necessary if I will fulfill my first human calling, which is to cultivate and care for and sustain the earth. I have to have affection for creation. Because why? I care for that which I, which I love. We have a we have a COVID dog. We've got a dog during COVID, right? And uh, the dog ends up capturing your heart and then you, then you care for the, like, why am I caring for this dog? I don't quite understand it other than affection 
which is born out of relationship, creates a sense of responsibility. And God's desire is that you would have that same sense of responsibility with creation by having affection for creation. But for that to happen, you have to get out and engage with creation. And for that to happen, you need this third thing. You need a capacity to receive in any environment. So what's gained from creation is revelation of God's character, affection for creation, and a capacity to receive in any environment. In other words, as I'm committed to reading God's other book, the book of creation, God's first book, if I'm going to read that book, I have to leave this room and be outside. And, oh, that means sometimes I'll get wet, sometimes I'll get cold, sometimes I'll get hot, sometimes I'll get hungry, but I'll be disconnected from my phone, my social media, and I'll, I'll engage in, in creation. And the thing is, there's a time to be uncomfortable. My daughter took this... Uh, this, she participated in a class in Austria where I've taught before. It's an outdoor class, and one of, their, one of the events is caving. And if you've ever been rappelled down into a cave, you know that once you get under the surface of the earth, unless you're, you know, in Wyoming with the hot springs or something, it's cold down there. And so they're all down there in this dark, cold cave. It's 35. There's water dripping off the walls. And uh, everybody's freezing, and my buddy preaches on Ecclesiastes 3. It's a time for everything. Time, time to live, time to die, time to born, be born, time for peace, time for war, time to scatter, time to gather. And then he, he just kind of develops it. Time to be warm, time to be cold. This is your time to be cold. Enjoy it. Right? Why? Here's why. You won't be cold forever. We'll leave here. You'll be, you won't die. You, you have amazing capacity to engage with creation outside of 72 degrees. You can do it. Go, go. Learn that you're more resilient than you thought you were because that very resilience will help you be resilient in other areas of life and relationships and hard conversations and big decisions. You can accept cold, warmth, light, dark, glory, suffering, gain, loss, Learning to accept it all is vital to your spiritual growth. And where do you learn it? In the second book. <laughs> so what are the next steps? Well, there's three texts that are important if we're going to respond and engage with creation. The first is this. Look and listen, Matthew 13. Jesus says, here's the problem. Some people have hard hearts. Like they have ears but don't hear, eyes but don't see. Can I encourage you when you're engaging in the second book, whether it's Green Lake or your garden or whatever it is, turn to, put, put this thing on silent at the least, if not even in the car, and just go. And just pay attention to begin to see the, the blossoms, the order of the seasons, the trees changing colors, the leaves falling, the new leaves coming. Pay attention and believe that in a right brain mystical way, you are being transformed by engaging with creation and thanking the creator for all that God is showing you. Just engage. Look and listen. But beyond look and listen, taste and see. Allow your senses, all of your senses, to absorb what God has for you. In Psalm 34, here's David. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Note that he does not say, study and memorize that the Lord is good. He says, taste and see. Why? Because God's desire is that your experience of God be just that, experience. 
Not, oh, you know, I heard a talk one day down by Green Lake, and, you know, there are a few good things in there, and now I think differently. No, no, no. God's desire is that you would have a holy encounter with your creator, and that happens often in the second book. Oh, excuse me, the first book, the book of creation. And if I may take off your shoes in Exodus 3, when God says that to Moses, people debate what that means, but a rabbi who understands Hebrew culture quite well, he said, this is what he says, taking off one's shoes expresses giving oneself up entirely to the meaning of a place. Um, we do some things in, I've done things in the past in wilderness ministry where I've said to somebody, okay, you have four hours here and here's your sitting space. It's a square, eight feet in eight feet, eight by eight square. I want you to sit here and just pay attention to what's in the square. What do you see? What's in the soil? And the, the initial response is, this is just soil, it's boring. But then as soon as you begin to pay attention to the place, life begins to change. You're made to love creation. You're made to steward creation. And that brings us to communion. It's so great that at the very day that we talk about engaging with creation, we celebrate together that the spiritual life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is made visible in the elements of creation. The bread, my body, broken for you, and the wine, the cup of the new covenant, my bloodshed. Eternality and the destiny of the cosmos hinges on what happened on the cross, but all of creation is healed. All of creation is redeemed, and we celebrate that with elements from creation. I'm gonna ask the servers to come forward. We're gonna serve you in your pews this morning, and as the servers come forward, uh, I'll encourage you today to take the bread and the cup individually, both. We won't hold the cup as we normally do, and just worship the Lord, giving thanks for his redemptive power in your life, and then we'll continue as we sing together. Father, we want to thank you that you lived, died, rose again in order that all of creation might be redeemed. May that begin with our own hearts this morning as we engage with you as worshipers, the source of every good and perfect gift. We pray in Christ's name.